All right, welcome to Journey Through Scripture, day 53. Today we're going to be looking at uh, Exodus chapter 31 through chapter 33, verse 6, and then all of Psalm 25, and finish up with Mark 6, verse 30 through verse 56. Okay, so in Exodus 31, uh, we're still talking here about the plans for the construction of the temple, uh, sorry, not temple, tabernacle, okay, it's not, not going to be the temple yet for hundreds of years, um, but it starts with um, the Lord telling Moses specifically whom he has set apart to do, at least it seems to be the brunt of this, all this fine work that needs to be done, uh, namely uh, Bezalel, Ben-Uri, Ben-Hur, so... This guy's name uh, is Bezalel, and he's um, he's of the tribe of Judah. Uh, we've seen his his grandfather Hur, uh, who was assisting Moses at the top of the uh, the mountain as he was tasked with holding his hands up for the whole time in order to uh, in order for God to give the Israelites miraculous victory. And uh, Bezalel is told, it said that he's filled with the Spirit. And uh, this is an interesting little verse here at the beginning of chapter 31, uh, because one of the interesting uh, questions to ask about just, you know, what's going on throughout Scripture has to do with the giving of God's Spirit. Um, as we will see, as particularly as we study the letters of Paul, but even as we go through some of the Gospels and certainly in Acts, the... Holy Spirit is something that is a, a special gift to God's uh, God's new covenant people under Jesus, um, as 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 someone who permanently takes up dwell, uh, uh, residence in our hearts, empowers us to serve the Lord and things like that. Um, in the Old Testament, it really appears as if the Holy Spirit is more sporadic in the lives of God's people. There, it's not to say that. The Holy Spirit is inactive, um, and certainly the Spirit really kind of by nature defi uh, defies being confined to any particular box, and so we can't say for sure, like just because it doesn't say something, therefore the Spirit of God uh, isn't active or something. But nevertheless, it, it does appear, particularly because of things that are explicitly said, like in the New Covenant promises, for example, that we'll see in uh, Ezekiel chapter um, 36, I believe it is, as well as uh, Jeremiah 31, that this giving of the Spirit is part of the promise of what God will do in the New Covenant, with, of course, the implication that he hasn't done it in the Old, at least not to the same extent. It's not to say that everything in the New Covenant is totally unprecedented, but but here one of the things uh, that the Spirit is said to do is is he, he equips this guy with the ability to do all kinds of stuff. Ability, intelligence, knowledge, craftsmanship. Um, this guy can do it all, apparently, and, and he's at least going to be a good foreman slash craftsman in order to fashion what needs to be done in the tabernacle. And I think it's particularly interesting that this guy, I don't know if I if I was more of a creative kind of guy uh, doing graphics or or uh, music. I do do some music, um, or just building. You know, th this would be kind of a, a guy in scripture that I would I would gravitate towards. Um, I think that he's kind of sets a good. He, he kind of functions as this good 
kind of prototype for for those who serve the Lord in that way, and um, just think that's interesting. Um, alongside of him is a guy named Oholiav ben Achisamach, and uh, he's from the tribe of Dan. So this is Betzalel and Oholiav, and they're going to be the ones who are um, charged with the uh, the the difficult craftsmanship, skilled labor that it takes to build uh, this uh, this this edifice that that will be the tabernacle, and they are empowered by the Spirit of God in order to do this. Um, okay. Um, next up, we are given um, uh, the, a, a further meditation on the Sabbath. So here it's interesting because note that twice in this paragraph, both in uh, verse 13 and, and verse 17, it is said to be the, a sign between the Lord and between the Israelites throughout all their generations First, that you may know that I, the Lord, I, Yahweh, sanctify you. And um, and then in verse 17, as a reminder, just like we saw in the Ten Commandments, that uh, in six days Yahweh made the heaven and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So it's patterned off of God's activity in creation, uh, that that we are to be like him in this respect, as resting on the seventh day. And this is of utmost importance. Now, notice it is called the sign, which is makes it probably the case that this is to be regarded as the sign of the covenant of Sinai, or the Mosaic covenant. However we want to call this, this covenant that is being established, the Sabbath is what appears to be its sign. You might recall that the bow in the skies, uh, which we might take to be the rainbow, is uh, the, the sign of the covenant with Noah. And then circumcision is the sign of the covenant with Abraham. Here, it's the Sabbath, rest from work. Um, And I think that's very significant. The concept of rest, of course, is very important in the Bible and the various terms that are used for it. Um, And and this, this idea, first of all, that the Israelites are being rescued from their harsh labor in, in Egypt. It's often put that way. Um, and then they're being brought into a place where the Lord will give them rest from all their enemies. And so this principle of a rhythm of rest is built into this covenant. And, uh, and that, by the way, is why it's so serious Okay, to, to, to break the Sabbath. In fact, here, note in verse 14 that it says that whoever profanes the Sabbath or does any work on it, which probably means the same thing, uh, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Uh, so this is not this is not a small thing, and it's not. And and this is relevant because we you know we read in the in the Torah about a guy who was found gathering sticks on the Sabbath, and is killed for it. And it seems really harsh, but the, the thing is is that you have to look at it through the lens of the significance that the Israelites would have seen it through, and that God is teaching them to see it through. That is, that this is, that the covenant with God is everything. This is the epicenter of God redeeming all of humanity. Uh, and and uh, even though they eventually kind of mess it up, Israel is standing at the center of that, and their covenant is at the center of that. 
And the very sign of the covenant is the idea that, can you guys just chill out for one day and stop working? Um, Or is your life so defined by what you can produce? Not only that, but do you have so little trust in the Lord that if you take off one day out of seven, you're not going to be okay? He's not going to take care of you? Didn't he just show you this through the, the feeding you with manna in the wilderness and with quail? Uh, and with water from the rock, that God can take care of you. You just have to trust him. And so these important principles are built into the Sabbath. And so the Sabbath is just this 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 sign that is stands at the center of the covenant. And so if you purposely violate that, you're basically throwing like everything that is important in life, and should be precious to you as somebody who's been saved from slavery by the Lord. You're taking that and you're just throwing it in the dust and you're saying, I don't want it. That doesn't matter to me. Um, This is not a peripheral command. This is not something that is just God's being nitpicky or anything. This is, this is key. This is, this is central. This is ultimate to what he is doing in the old covenant. Uh, The other thing to note, kind of connected to that, uh, keep in mind that the language here uh, that I that I read for you in verse four, 14, uh, as the penalty for breaking the Sabbath, it's to be cut off from among his people. And then in verse 15, it says, uh, whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. This, by the way, would be a good verse. I don't know if you remember, but a few weeks ago, uh, I don't know how long it was actually, uh, these days kind of uh, um, collapsed together for me. Um, a, a short while back, I reflected on the expression to be cut off from his people, and I think it was when we were talking about the Passover. And uh, I said that there's a little bit of um, disagreement there as to whether that means that you're kind of just become an outcast in some sense, and then if so, how permanent is that, uh, or does it mean to die? And then here, it seems to be being used synonymously with being put to death. So, if you want to make a case that being cut off from from your people is a is something that is uh, it's an indication of a ca- that a capital offense has been committed, then this would be uh, obviously a passage that would highly uh, suggest that. Okay, then how does chapter thirty one end? It ends with the Lord giving to Moses two tablets of the testimony. It's called tablets of stone, written in the finger of God, and. Um, Clay tablets, of course, were a uh, very prominent way of uh, writing things down. They were they were often used in the ancient world, um, and they are various sizes: the size that can fit in the palm of your hand um, to to a little bit bigger, like like maybe around a notebook size or so. Um, and uh, it's it's unclear exactly what kind of script God would have written this in. Um, but um, but it does say that it was written with the finger of God. So uh, I think that means, of course, that, that God himself inscribed this on it. And um, and so, yeah, so Moses uh, is, um, is set to come down the mountain. So think about how crazy this is. We just received, we just got through, I don't know, I forgot to count how many chapters of of Moses receiving instructions as to how the people are supposed to worship God. This is the correct way to worship. Here is the tabernacle. Here's how you make it. I'm going to dwell with you. 
be your God, you're going to be my people, and, and this is how it's going to be, and this is these are the terms on which you will come to me. Um, uh, that Obviously, it's not fully fleshed out yet, but yeah, I mean, the main components are given. And then chapter 32 comes along, and it's like, meanwhile, down in the camp. So while Moses is communing with God, here's what the people are up to. And they see that he's delayed, right? He's up there for 40 days and 40 nights, and they're not quite sure what's going on. It's not like he gave them advance notice. It was kind of a spontaneous thing that God called Moses up the mountain. But when they saw that he was delayed, it says, that they came to Aaron, who is right Moses's right-hand man, to, in the words of God, Moses's quote-unquote prophet, and uh, and they say, tell him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of them, of him. And uh, so, and Aaron doesn't need apparently much much convincing, because he tells, all right, give me give me all the gold, give me give me your rings and your earrings and your nose rings, whatever you got, give it to me. And keep in mind, um, the collection for the tabernacle has not yet been taken. God, how did they get all that stuff? God gave them favor in the eyes of the Egyptians, and they quote unquote plundered the Egyptians, right? They they asked for the stuff, and and people gave it to them charitably. Not sure exactly what that looked like, but that's what the text says. And here they are taking this gold that could have been used in the construction of the tabernacle, and they give it to Aaron so that he can fashion quote unquote gods for them. And um, yeah, so. Then he um, he took it and he he melts it all down, and he makes it into a golden calf or a, a cast metal calf. It's the the Hebrew expression is uh, refers more to like something that is made out of cast metal. Obviously, it's made with gold, so I don't think golden calf is a, is an unfair um, translation. And anybody who's been to a museum and seen ancient Near Eastern iconography knows that bulls are all over the place at the thing, right? Like, this is a very common thing. And often you will see pictures of deities kind of riding on bulls, which may be the idea uh, that this, what this is, where uh, this would be um, a thing where the, where the uh, quote-unquote gods would go on top of so that they can go before them, right? They want them to go before them, uh, i.e., lead them away from this place, lead them to the place where they need to go. And um, and then uh, Aaron says, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Um, and then he builds an altar and uh, says, Tomorrow, and this is an interesting phrase, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. Okay, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> so there's a bunch of elements, and I don't know if we can be totally dogmatic about it. So first of all, they he wants them to fa- they want him to fashion a they want him to fashion gods, multiple gods, right? Then he fashions one calf, um, and then he tells them these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Israel of of Egypt. And then he declares a feast to Yahweh. So here's kind of what I think is going on. Uh, I think what we have is a little bit of breaking of the first and the second commandment. All right, 
a lot of breaking of it. So the 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 concept is not that they've totally rejected Yahweh from being their god, but that he's so transcendent that they have no hope. They they can't commune with him. Like he's he's visually there at the top of this mountain. It's not like they no longer believe in him, right? Uh, but they've all been commanded, don't even go near the mountain. And Moses has just disappeared there. He's up there for more than a month. What are we supposed to do? Uh, let's get this show on the road. Um, and so it's not that uncommon in the ancient world for deities. In fact, it's very, very common, right? To have friends, cohorts, consorts, um, other deities, uh, perhaps lesser, who are maybe more... Uh, I, I suppose we could say closer to the people than the than the major deities are more accessible, and uh, and so so here it doesn't seem as if you have a an outright a rejection of Yahweh. It's just that we need to summon uh, middlemen here, lesser deities, in order to to get us away from this rock and get us where we're going, and so that that appears to be what they're doing here. And uh, that these would be made then to ride or assumed to ride on this golden calf, um, and and this idea that that Yahweh had and his retinue were responsible for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So you do have a, a violation of the first commandment: "You shall have no other gods in my presence." Remember that, um, which is the this is probably a commandment that has not yet sunk into them. Remember, they're not steeped in monotheism. They're not, you don't have a lot of these strong statements that there, I am Yahweh and there is no other besides me, there is no God. Uh, you know, they, 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 maybe you can infer that from the first commandment, but uh, it, it's not the most obvious thing in the world to them. Uh, more, moreover, so you, so you've got this violation of the first commandment, and then you've got a violation of the second, where they're not supposed to make graven images. They're not supposed to make images in order to to worship the Lord. That the Lord wanted distance, not only from the worship of other gods, but for worshiping Him like He's just one of them. And so this is all kinds of haywire. And however we want to describe what's going on here, it's idolatry. And it says, they rose up early the next day. They offered burnt offerings, peace offerings, just like they did at the establishment of the covenant. And they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Uh, play, interestingly, there is tzachak, the same verb that Isaac's name comes from, to laugh. Um, so they rose up. So they're having a grand old time doing this thing. And then the Lord... Uh, starts. Uh, he says to Moses, and notice how Moses is now. How the, sorry, how the Lord is now referring to the people of Israel. Go down for your people, not my people. Your people. He's distancing himself, right? Whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Does this is how sick God is about this? Um, he's 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 calling them your people, and. Um, and 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 basically is like go down because here's what they've done and leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you Moses now that's an interesting thing right because think about the promises to Abraham okay in your offspring all the families of the earth will be blessed there could technically 
that could probably still work if Moses is the only one that's left. Um, that you know, so 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 God has a plausible out of the covenant. They've already violated. They've violated the first two and arguably the most important of the Ten Commandments before they're even away from Sinai. And um, Moses, however, then intercedes with God. And here we have this pattern of a mediator really arising. Of course, this will ultimately be fulfilled in Christ, but where God is has this righteous indignation towards sin, he, he hates it and he, and he will judge it, um, and one can stand on behalf of the people and, and plead for mercy— and will receive it because God, as we will see tomorrow, is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Um, and this is just this kind of this playing out in real time, right? That God God is angry, and then Moses. And look at the the things that Moses um, does here. So first of all, he he kind of refuses the way that God is talking about the people. O Yahweh, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Right? Moses doesn't say my people. He's like, no, that they are your people, and whom you brought out. And he reminds them of what what they've done. And it's essentially a couple things. Like, for, first of all, like what will happen to your name, to your reputation through the earth? Right? We just did all this stuff, God, so that um, so that the Egyptians would know that you are God. And and we're gonna flush that down the toilet. They're just gonna think that all right, yeah, Yahweh is this powerful deity, but he just like the, his people are worse off than than they were here because they followed him, right? Like, what kind of god is this to follow? And um, and the Lord it says turned and relented. Okay, so relent is a very this is a very common language of of God when his disposition turns from wrathful towards merciful. Uh, we see this also, for example, with the city of Nineveh after Jonah goes and preaches to it. Um, yeah. Now, um, I think, that, I don't think any of this means that, like, God is just, like, uh, totally malleable, like, unequal to Moses or anything. I don't think that we should be thinking of it like that, as if Moses talked him into something or whatever. I think what this is showing us is in a very real way how prayer and intercession do work. Um, that's not to say that, you know, if we want to get into the metaphysical background to things like, did God know that? Mo- yeah, Mo- God knew that Moses was going to say that. He knew he was going to relent and everything. But this is him playing things out in real time. Um, I'm kind of, with stuff like this, I'm kind of reminded of that movie Minority Report. Uh, with Tom Cruise. I think it's a pretty good science fiction movie. And it's basically in the future where they're able to um, tell with a very high degree of certainty when and by whom murders are going to take place. And so they stop them before they happen. And um, there's there's an interesting ethical issue that's raised there, right? Because you've got all these people then who are tried for murders they've never committed. Um, and there's something that seems morally wrong about that. Um, like obviously on the one hand, it's better that those murders never happen, but then on the other hand, like we're, we're actually punishing people for something they never actually did for something. And I think a bunch of stuff, some of that maps on to certain questions relating to God that, 
that, yeah, God could just do things. I mean, he doesn't even really need to create, right? Like, he knows how everything's going to be anyway. Like, why, why even this whole ordeal? But there's something about it actually happening that makes redemptive history um, what it is, that, that makes it, I, I suppose you could say, one of, one of the ways it impacts, it impact, seems to impact the justice and judgment of God. And um, so rather than just like theoretically, God knows what I would have done if he created me, and he, so he decided not to create me and just make me like a, an everlasting soul in heaven or something like that. Um, not as if that's the ultimate Christian hope anyway. The ultimate Christian hope is physical. But, um, I don't know, you know, uh, so I, I think there's something to these things playing themselves out in real time with people truly and, and legitimately um, interacting with God. Uh, this, of course, has interesting implications for what is sometimes known as uh, classical models of God, where God is um, impassive and un and like utterly unchanging and things like that, which... I think are very hard to jive with biblical passages, particularly passages like this. Um, okay, um, so Moses is a uh, Mo- so Moses then goes down, and note now that we are reminded that Joshua is with him, which is significant because Joshua was going to be the one to to take over where. Uh, to take over Moses's position after Moses is gone, and will be the one to lead the people into the promised land. So Joshua is also kind of unstained by this event, and uh, Joshua is like, is like, hey, what's going on? Is this the noise of war that I hear? And uh, Moses is like, nope, no, it is not. It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the shout of the cry of defeat. But that's the sound of singing that uh, that I hear. And as he comes near, he gets mad and he gets he's so ticked off that he throws those tablets and breaks them at the foot of the mountain. And then he takes the calf. You could just imagine Moses like ripping mad, just showing up and he takes the calf and he he burns it. He grinds it into powder and he puts scatters it in water and then starts forcing people to drink it like you want you want this idol you you take it and um yeah this is this is some righteous indignation there and then he comes to Aaron and uh Aaron's like what Moses is like what did this people do to you that you would that you would s- cast such a great sin upon them right that you're supposed to be their leader and you're going to lead them in this like how could you do this? Like, what did they, did they drive you that crazy that you're, that you're willing to, uh, like, lead them in this kind of sin against God? And, um, and then, and Aaron basically tells him exactly what happened, right? But the, the, the way that he ends it is classic. Um, he's like, so I said, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Like, oh, how magical. Left out the part about, uh, how you, Per, like fashioned it into this fancy little cow. So yeah. Um so um and then and then notice what uh what what Aaron says to Moses. He says, Let not your anger burn hot, which is just what Moses said to God. So notice that like the weird literary thing that's going on here. Um he says uh Aaron says that to Moses because remember back in seven one 
how um, God told Moses that you're going to be like God to Pharaoh and and Aaron will be your prophet. And so Aaron is essentially talking to Moses like Moses just talked to God. The only difference, of course, is that Aaron is not innocent like Moses did. Aaron's not really a legitimate intercessor here. He, Aaron is Aaron is just as much a part of this as as they are. In fact, he's kind of the ringleader here. And um, so, um, so at any rate, uh, Moses basically calls forth people who is going to be on the Lord's side here, and the ones who really come forward are the tribe of Levi, and. Um, he tells them to put their sword against uh, against even the people who are close to them who did this, and uh, and they do, and many fall uh, fell on that day, and um, therefore because of this like this forceful zeal for the Lord that the Levites have, this is, is kind of sets them on the path of being this set apart uh, sort of sacred tribe. And uh, indeed, Moses says, today you have been ordained to the service of Yahweh, um, each one at the cost of his son and at the cost of his brother, that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. That being ordained, again, it's it's the, the filling of your hands. Remember the, the, that image of, of being set apart for service. Um, and then Moses is like, all right, I'm going to go and pray. Um, and here we see how intercession also cleanses. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin, um, not through sacrifice, but through communing with God. And um, yeah, so um, all right, I think that's about it. There's a, there was a, a very important few chapters, so I spent a, a, some extra time here on it. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it basically ends with this this recommitment that uh, that God is is is. He's like, all right, you know what? I'll, I'll, I will go with you. We'll, we'll, we're going to go back to this this land um, because Moses is like, look, if you're not going to do this, just blot me out of the book that you've written. Um, he's he's so fed up with the whole thing, and um, and God's like, no, I will go with you, but uh, nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. So there will be a reckoning for this. Okay, let's take a look at Psalm 25. Uh, this is another one of these Psalms of David. Um, and here is, uh, To you, O Yahweh, I lift up my soul. Okay, this is a, this is a Psalm of, of closeness with the Lord and a desire to know him more. Um, uh, I, because I trust in you, you know, I, I, in you I trust, and so let, let me not be put to shame. Let my enemies not exult over me. Um, because no one who waits for you are going to be put to shame. And this waiting for the Lord is basically this idea that God does things on his own time frame. Okay? It doesn't mean I'm going to sit around and do nothing. It just means that that you're the one who decides when my prayers get answered, essentially, and, and not me. Um, but in the meantime, uh, let me know your ways. Teach me your paths. Um, for you are the God of my salvation. And so I, there it is again, I wait for you all day long. And um, he appeals to God, remember your mercy. Um, um, don't, don't remember the sins of my youth. Um, and, uh, and, and then he talks about 
pardoning his guilt, right? So there's this idea that he's not saying, like, I'm sinlessly perfect, so you need to listen to me. He's saying, you know, I'm doing the best I can, and I, and I, whatever, my failings, I cast myself upon your grace. Um, and then verse 12 is great. Who is the man who fears Yahweh? Him he will instruct in the way that he should choose. This idea of the fear of God. And uh, as we saw in Exodus 20, right, this is not, sometimes you hear that fear is, oh, it's just respect. It just means respect. Uh, no, there is a real, like, fear. Like, you, you, are, you are afraid of, of you're either going to be afraid of man, you're going to be afraid of uh, losing the idols in your life, or you're going to be afraid of God. Who's the one whose approval you have the most... Um, concern about losing okay who's the one who's who matters the most to you um and like when and but there is an element of fear in there like when jesus says don't fear the one who can kill the body but fear the one who after killing the body can cast body and soul into hell like that doesn't sound like he's just saying respect him okay there there is an element of trembling just as we saw at mount sinai right there's there's trembling before god um, okay, let's look at Mark 6, verses 30 through 56. Uh, we're not going to spend too much time on this. Uh, this is a, something that happens in all the Gospels. This is the feeding of the 5,000. And um, it's actually more than 5,000, as we'll see in a minute. But um, And this, I think, is interesting because uh, especially, it's not surprised, this isn't as surprising with the synoptics, the, the Gospels that are closely, that are very closely related to each other, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But with John, it also so happens that the two events that we read about in this passage, which are the feeding of the 5,000 and then the walking on the water, also happen in the same sequence. Um, although the telling of each of them, like, it's not as if John is ripping off the synoptics or something. Like, he's got his own voice, and yet he puts them both in the same sequence, the one after the other. So here, um, Jesus comes um, comes to a, a, um, a desolate place. This is after the apostles' return. And note that it's still calling them the apostles here, because they are the ones whom Jesus sent, and that is what apostle means. Um, and they come to this place, and Jesus has compassion on them. Even though there's these these crowds that are following him, right, and it's often Mark uh, portrays it as kind of like really exhausting seeming, um, they, uh, they, they, he's got compassion on them because they they are like sheep with no shepherd and um and they the disciples are like you got to tell them to go in the towns it's getting late they got to get themselves something to eat and and Jesus is like you give them something to eat and they're like where how are we going to get how are we going to get them something to eat and 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 Jesus basically uh tells them like all right well what do we have um how many loaves do we have and they find out, and then they've also got two fish. So they've got five loaves of bread, two fish. As I usually point out, these are not massive loaves of bread. These are probably little cakes. And um, and they st- he the Lord gives thanks to them and then passes them. And, and we know the story, right? Everyone is filled, and the disciples go, and they collect 12 baskets left over. Um, I think the imagery here is important. As I say, every time we come through this, that it is indeed Jesus who is provo- 
you know, taking the what meager things we have, multiplying it, us giving sustenance to people, but doing it through the disciples who are just been called the apostles, right? Like they're the ones who distribute the bread to the people and the fish to the people. Um, I don't think we should miss that imagery. And then he sends his disciples away on a boat, and he himself goes off to pray. And um, I I love the kind of like the way in which like there's a bunch of things in the gospels that really smack of eyewitness testimonies. And it's interesting. It says it was about the fourth watch of the night. Like, who cares? What an incidental detail. And what a way, like, this is how you would tell it if you were there, right? You wouldn't be like, and it was at 12 sharp. No, somewhere around the fourth watch of the night, okay? Um, they see Jesus coming out to them, walking on the sea, and they freak out. They think it's a ghost. And he says, take heart. It's I. Do not be afraid. Um, and he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Um, and uh, they didn't understand about the loaves, but it says their hearts were hardened. And here we have Mark's theme of the apostles just being really dense about who Jesus is and uh, and, and what this all means. Um, of course, were we there, probably wouldn't be any less dense, so let's not give those guys too hard of a time. Okay, that's it for today. Thank you, as always, for joining me. I look forward to being with you tomorrow. Until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.